Hello, I'm Nitin Seem, the website editor for the American Thoracic Society. It is my great pleasure to kick off our ATS Conversations in Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine podcast series for the academic year 2015-2016 with the ATS president, Atul Malhotra. Dr. Malhotra is a Kenneth M. Moser Professor of Medicine and Division Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. So I know that a primary focus of your presidency is on early career professionals. In fact, your first presidential message in ATS News was entitled, Focusing on the Next Generation. Why is this so important to you? You know, the next generation is something I've been passionate about for some time. I'm a big believer that a lot of the success I've had in academics or what success I've had is a large part because of the young people around me who have done great things. I've had clinicians go on to be very stellar uh, clinician teachers and research scientists who publish great papers. And so what strength I've had in academics has been a result of this process. I've always been very passionate about mentoring, and I think my vision for the ATS is to try and attract and retain the best and brightest in our field. I think as a long-term strategy, that's a great way to keep the ATS kind of thriving and vibrant. As you know, I've always been a big sports fan, and I'm a big believer that the sports teams that do the best are the ones that have a good draft system and build from within rather than trying to build teams in other ways. So being a Redskins fan, I, I know that the opposite strategy doesn't work. So I, <laughs> I, I, the, Yankees, I suspect... the Yankees may be the exception, but you know, even then I think a good farm system is something that is important, but you know, the, some of the great sports teams have had a, a very strong draft. You build young talent and you see the fruits of your efforts a few years down the road. And just out of curiosity, I'd be interested in your perspective, do you think medicine is losing more great minds to other fields in this generation than in prior generations? And if so, what do you think can be done about that? You know, I do. I, I often tell the story that my nephew was graduating from a master's in engineering at Stanford. And so I went to the graduation and I met all kinds of really smart kids who were, you know, some of the brightest minds in the country. And not one was going into medicine. There are people going into engineering. There are people going into business. There are people uh, doing all kinds of exciting things, and not one was going into medicine. And I think something's happened over the last 10 or 15 years where the best and brightest aren't going into medicine anymore. And I think I see that in the medical students as well, that just their passion and drive isn't there. And that is a concern of mine. So part of the goal here is to, again, to attract and retain the best and brightest in our into our field, not just in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine, but more generally into the medical profession. Well, I think that's obviously an incredibly important goal, and and I suspect that many of our listeners are the exact group of people you're talking about, the next generation of pulmonary critical care and sleep physicians. So if you could please tell them directly about some of the programs that you along with ATS, have already implemented and others you plan to initiate uh, that are directed at them? Sure. We've had uh, a number of initiatives over the last several years that have been focusing on young people at basically every level of training. Back in 2013 in Philadelphia, we started our Medical Student Scholars Program, and this was an initiative where we invited the five local medical schools in Philadelphia to send people to the ATS International Conference for free. And because they were local, there was no transportation costs or accommodation costs. We waived the registration fee. And so essentially these people were able to participate in the meeting 
for free. And we got about 50 medical students who came in. Each of them were assigned mentors, big brother, big sister type program. And they were given the opportunity to meet key opinion leaders in our field and participate in the international conference to go to lectures and to participate in the sessions. And the feedback we got was overwhelmingly positive. More than 50% of our students expressed an interest afterwards of going, of wanting to go into pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine as a direct result of our program in Philadelphia. And so we're very excited about that. I still get emails from some of those participants. We still track some of them via surveys to see where they end up. And the ultimate proof of the pudding will be how many of them end up in our laboratories and in our fellowships years down the road. But I think just the exposure was important, at least for some of them. In 2014 in San Diego, we had the same program, but instead of calling it Medical Student Scholars, we called it Student Scholars, and we invited nursing students and graduate students and others. And again, we got quite a few participants locally from San Diego, overwhelmingly positive uh, response, both from the mentors and the mentees. And many of those students I see here in San Diego doing great things, getting very focused on respiratory disease and still interacting with individuals from that program from 2014. In Denver, we had the same program, Student Scholars Program, and San Francisco 2016 planning is underway. So that's our student initiatives. We've also had something called our resident boot camp. So Laura Crotty Alexander is one of the faculty here at UCSD who's worked on that initiative. Her idea was to have medicine and pediatric residents who had already matched into pulmonary fellowship starting in July come to our meeting in May and participate in the program that was geared for them. And the idea was that they would get intensive training from key opinion leaders at the international conference so that they could hit the ground running in July when they began their fellowships. And the initial program was was a couple of years ago now, and we did it again this year. The initial program was supposed to be 20 trainees. We quickly went up to, I think it was 150 trainees we had participating. It was very, very exciting. The enthusiasm was palpable from the participants, and we got amazingly good feedback. My hope is we'll create lifelong members through that process where people will really participate in the ATS for years to come, having experienced what, what we have to offer. So that's something that has been a major plus. We have our Fellows Track Symposium, which has been going on for some years, and that's been quite popular this year. I think we had 200 participants in that, and that was a well-received, and it always has been a key feature of our junior programs. We also have some of these remote mentoring programs, which we've been developing, where if trainees from smaller programs or from programs that don't have adequate mentorship are seeking external mentors, we do a matchmaking-type endeavor where mentor-mentee pairs are defined across institutions or across countries, for that matter. We've defined over 150 mentor-mentee pairs now. I think we initially started with the Sleep Assembly some years ago, and as a result of that program, I know of three or four RO1-funded investigators that came as a direct result of that sleep program. It's now not just sleep, but across the full ATS, and these mentor-mentee pairs have been very uh, fruitful. Uh, we've gotten very good feedback about people feeling involved and engaged, both on the mentor side as well as on the mentee side. It's one of the things that ATS does well is exposing people to expertise and creating networking and that sort of interaction. Well, thank you for that. I mean, there are obviously a lot of different programs, and I'll 
echo something you said. I taught the ventilators at the resident boot camp, and I saw how many people were there and how excited they were about it. And we do some regional teaching here in D.C. after that. And the, I can tell you the fellows who went through the ATS boot camp felt they were so much more prepared for the continuing content and were still speaking highly about it uh, six weeks afterwards. Please tell us about your latest initiative, the Global Scholars Program. And the idea here was many people in underdeveloped countries or in developing countries are unable to come to our international conference for financial and logistic reasons. And so I've had the pleasure of visiting several countries in Africa and in Asia and South America. And when I've done so, I've been very enthusiastic about the level of medical students in many of these places. When I was in uh, Kigali, Rwanda, the students there were very bright. They just didn't have the opportunity to learn all the things that we would in North America. Similarly, when I was in Maputo, Mozambique, I was very impressed with the caliber of the trainees. It's just that they weren't given the opportunity or the information that would be required to really be cutting edge. So the Global Scholars Program is a webinar-based session where we provide content. It's a lecture that's once every two weeks. And we have a curriculum that covers most of respiratory medicine over the course of a year. And people have been participating so far in Mozambique, and we have two sites in Uganda. And thus far, we've given five lectures to date, and they've been very well received. All the participants complete a pre- and post-test. And the completion of the curriculum, they get a certificate saying they're an ATS Global Scholar. And having visited some of these places, become aware that that certificate for them carries a lot of value, being an ATS Global Scholar there's a price on that or there's a value to that that's really quite dear to many of them. They can use it to show their ministers of health saying they've, required, they've acquired specialized training and that they have expertise that maybe uh, others wouldn't. And the ultimate goal there is to make it self-sustaining as we train people and get them excited about respiratory medicine, that they'll learn more about it and ultimately be able to train people there locally. So there's that saying, if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for one day. You teach them to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. This is teaching people how to fish. The other part of the program is that the top couple of students from participating Global Scholars will get a free trip to the ATS meeting, to the International Conference in San Francisco. So I was able to get a foundation grant when I was in Maputo, Mozambique, from ResMed Foundation that funded seven of their doctors to come to our ATS meeting in Denver. And our hope is to have several physicians from developing countries come to San Francisco in ATS 2016 as well. I did want to follow up a little bit more about the, the Global Scholars Program. Cause I find that really interesting and, and a unique program. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you cared for patients in Africa in the past, and I'm sure that experience helped fuel your interest in the Global Scholars Program. Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. So. There was a group I had the privilege of working with about three years ago. This was at King Faisal Hospital in Kigali, Rwanda. There was a group out of Spokane, Washington called Healing Hearts, and their goal was to bring a a whole team over from North America to operate on people that had different forms of heart disease, be it rheumatic heart disease or other causes. And I was there as an intensivist working in the intensive care unit at King Faisal Hospital helping take care of patients. And to me, it was a very kind of game-changing experience. I got to be in the trenches and sort of take care of people with very limited resources, but I found it an intellectual challenge, and it was sort of a physical challenge as well in many ways to take care of these patients. 
There was one patient in particular who sort of really got to me. Her name was Claire, and I'm using her name with permission to tell the story. My daughter's name is Claire as well, and the two Claires were born 10 days apart. And the Claire in Africa came in with marked tachypnea, she had a respiratory rate in the 50s, and when she arrived, nobody thought she was going to make it. And we looked at her, and I said, there's no way we can send this kid to the operating room. She's just not going to make it. And what I'll say, by the miracle of critical care, she actually survived uh, the operation. I took care of her post-op, and she survived. She had a patent ductus arteriosus and did very well as a result of that procedure. And, and to me, it was a very gratifying experience. Afterwards, I got the two Claire's to Skype one another, and my Claire sent her a teddy bear and other little gifts that were a sort of heartwarming experience for me. And again, considered a game changer in many ways, but the the other take-home message was that, you know, we can come fly over to Africa, solve a few problems, create others, and then leave. That, that wasn't the goal. The goal was really to build capacity there, and that's something that helped give me the ideas about global scholars, that we, we can fly in and fly out, but it's much more valuable to create a lasting impact by building capacity. And so that's was the genesis of that idea, at least uh, from my perspective. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was such a such a nice story. And since I have you here, uh, this is a unique opportunity because your background to me is fascinating, that you have an expertise and a research focus in two seemingly disparate areas, sleep apnea and ARDS, you know, one obviously in the field of sleep and the other in critical care. And I'm just asking, I'm sure our listeners would be interested, how did that happen? Well, from early on, I've been teased by many people about being unfocused. People say, well, they're all over the place. You publish in this area and that area, and they're all unfocused. And I sort of look at that two ways. It's true, I am sort of unfocused. When I look at my publications, they are somewhat all over the map. And that, to some extent, to me, is a source of pride in the sense that I do cover different areas. But sometimes, I, as I say, I get teased about it. And it's funny for me now as a mentor, because often I'll tell my junior people, hey, you need to focus. And <laughs> they look at me and sometimes laugh, or sometimes they react in ways that I wouldn't expect, and it's sort of an interesting challenge in that respect. There were one or two sort of background stories behind that, because I used to get my mentors and others yell at me saying, uh, you're unfocused, you're never going to you know, develop expertise in a particular area. I think it's true, had I just focused in one niche, I would have done better in that in that particular niche. It's just sort of the nature of the beast. But I have fun doing what I'm doing and I've enjoyed the way I try and sum things up is I have been blessed with very good teachers in applied physiology and I've learned a lot of good physiology from lots of great teachers. Steve Loring, Jim Butler, others that taught me along the way. And so when I feel like I have a good understanding of applied physiology, you can apply that to different diseases whether the disease is asthma or COPD or sleep apnea or ARDS, it doesn't matter that much. It's sort of the mechanics of the respiratory system or airflow dynamics or those sorts of principles, heart-lung interactions, control of breathing. These are principles that sort of apply to many different diseases. And so there is sort of a unifying principle there. The other anecdote I tell about this is I went to Jeff Drazen, who was one of my mentors early on, I sort of teased him about it, too, saying, well, you know, he was somewhat unfocused as well. He used to do a lot of leukotriene biology, but he did some of the fundamental work on high-frequency ventilation and other things. And what he said to me was quite valuable. He said, Once, he said, just get good at something, and then you can dabble at other things. And so he got very good with asthma biology, obviously, which everybody knows. 
but the other areas he sort of dabbled in. So I kind of feel that I took that model and applied it in the sense that I think I got very good with upper airway physiology, and I'm proud of the work I've done in that area. I kind of dabble in the other areas. I don't consider myself a world expert in ARDS by any means, but you know, I published in that area a little bit, and I'm proud of what I've contributed to that field. But the message to young people is, yeah, do get very good at something, and then you can start dabbling in other areas. If you try and do everything, you you can easily spread yourself too thin. Definitely good advice, and they may have called you unfocused, but they can't call you unproductive, certainly. I think you're downplaying your contributions even in the, the ARDS uh, research. And so while sort of on that topic, though, I, I think I'd be curious to hear if there's something you've read recently in either sleep apnea or ARDS or any of your areas of interest that you've read and said, wow, that's something that's really interesting or novel. I mean, you have a unique perspective. So I was wondering if you could uh, share um, something you've read recently that that, uh, that made you think. Well, it's interesting. The one uh, that comes to mind for me that kind of came out of Global Scholars, actually, was in preparation for one of the lectures, I started reading about a uh, paper that's published in Lancet Global Health about uh, COPD in, in rural Uganda. And it's not sort of novel or anything so much as, as striking. And I think I remember the numbers uh, accurately. They did testing in rural Uganda of the population there. And I think 15% of men, 17% of women had chronic obstructive pulmonary disease for the population, which to me were high numbers. What was striking was more than 90% were exposed to biomass, fuels of various kinds or biomass dusts of various kinds. And uh, there weren't that many smokers. 85% of the women were never smokers. I think for men it was something like 45% of the men were never smokers. But there was a huge amount of COPD there potentially from this biomass exposure. And what was striking to me was if you looked at the women with COPD, I think 40% were between ages of 30 and 39, which to me is quite stunning when you think about the global burden then of COPD. And so part of my year as president has been traveling all around the world and meeting lots of interesting people. And it's become clear to me now that, you know, when you read about it in a textbook, the Commonest cause of COPD worldwide is not from cigarette smoking, it's from air pollution and cook stoves and these other exposures. And I shudder to think what's going to happen when smoking and other things become as prevalent in some of these rural areas as, as it is in uh, in more developed countries. So my summary there was just the global burden of lung disease is something that's perhaps underappreciated even for pulmonologists. I didn't sort of realize how staggering the numbers were, think about that, 17% of women had COPD, and 40% of those were between ages 30 and 39. That, to me, is just uh, striking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we think about, uh, hear people speak about the lack of funding for COPD. We think about it in North America. We talk about it as a, you know, a disease in older people who are ex-smokers. Those those numbers you cite certainly point in a different direction and show how important that is globally. Uh, in uh, young women. Uh, yeah, and I just just follow up on that a little bit and say that I, I do hear that when I visit the National Institutes of Health and things, so people consider COPD to be a self-inflicted disease. And to me, at this point, that statement is just irresponsible. It's not self-inflicted when people are being exposed to cook stoves, other uh, air pollution, other biomass exposures of various kinds. It's not self-inflicted anymore. It is in some people, but that 
you know, reflect smoking behaviors 20, 30 years ago that weren't necessarily, uh, you know, it's hard to blame the victims at this point. I'd like to spend um, our last few minutes discussing the 2016 International Conference, and as president, that'll be in San Francisco, and I'm sure there are some things that you're particularly interested in feel like mentioning, so anything you'd care to, to highlight about the 2016 ATS International Conference? Yeah, we're, we're having ongoing discussions about the content of that meeting, so uh, Zaya Barak and Jess Mandel are the International Conference Committee chairs, and they're uh, going to do a great job putting together a first-rate clinical research and, and teaching sessions at the meeting in San Francisco. We've gotten Craig Venter to sign up to be the speaker at the opening ceremonies. He, as you may know, has you know, been very prominent in the area of uh, genomics and the human genome efforts, and he's done a lot of entrepreneurial work as well. He has given some recent plenary talks on the future of healthcare and other things like that. I read an article on him recently that well, the title was The World's First Trillionaire, and this was speculation-type uh, article saying that if you had to put money on somebody to make a trillion dollars, that he would be a person to consider. So there's a lot of dimensions to him that are quite interesting. I've gotten to know him a little bit since moving to San Diego, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that uh, session in the opening ceremonies. Finally, I want to close the podcast, and I want to really thank you for taking the time to discussing uh, these issues. I would like to point out that this interview will be posted on the ATS website, thoracic.org, at the start of football season. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask for your Super Bowl prediction for all our listeners while we're here. Well, as some of you know, I'm a fanatic uh, Pittsburgh Steelers fan. In fact, I'm looking at a picture of Le'Veon Bell here in my office right now. But unfortunately, with the injury to Marquise Pouncey, who is our center, I'm sort of a little bit pessimistic these days. So I'll pick the Steelers, but I'll do that with some religious faith rather than uh, real <laughs> carefully thought through uh, ideas. But uh, as I will say, uh, you know, I'll be a Steelers fan to my grave. So, <laughs> Well, thank you very much for your time.